The Defense Department is telling its acquisition people to use what's known as category management to expand the use of small business. But for years, small business has argued that category management actually limits the number of vendors who can sell to the government. Here to analyze this latest DOD memo, the Professional Services Council President and CEO, David Berto. All right, what's going on here? It's about a week and a half old now, this memo. Right. Well, Tom, there's three moving parts here. One is last year, in fact, really from the beginning, this administration has been pushing for increasing the number of dollars going to small businesses, not only in general, but in particular categories, disabled veteran-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, et cetera. And they began to expand the ability to do that through the contracting process. And then in January, DOD released a long-awaited, we've been waiting for it for about a year, its small business strategy. And they're going through a round of discussions now promoting that with professional services council members and others. And then Friday, a week ago, DOD issued a memorandum, and it's jointly signed by the head of defense contract and pricing and the head of the small business office called Achieving Small Business Goals Through Category Management Practices. That's a pretty innocuous sounding subject line. But what it seems to be doing is to say you can get credit for tier two spend under management dollars that typically is your category management goals. You can get credit for small business contracts that aren't even issued under a category management best in class contract. So it's like two different processes adding up to meet the same goal. It also then would help the administration reach its goal of more dollars flowing to small businesses. Well, to simplify here, if it says you can get credit for small business dollars with non-category management contracts, then it's basically saying just buy from any small business you want to and the dollars add up. The memo is quite clear. It says the achievement of these goals, that is the goals for socioeconomic small businesses, etc., shall be prioritized over attainment of the best-in-class contract goals if the achievement is not possible. So those agencies or sub-agencies in DOD who would rather use their own vehicles instead of the best-in-class contracts are essentially incentivized here to do so. So what does this mean for companies? I think two questions that I'd like to know the answer to that we don't is, what analysis has DOD done of where the benefits of this new guidance are going to flow, right? And the second is, what do you do for those companies that bought Their purpose required them to get on these best-in-class contract vehicles. They spend a lot of money qualifying for those, getting through the on-ramps, waiting sometimes months or years to get on. And now all of a sudden they're told, that doesn't matter. We're not going to be using those vehicles. We'll get at whoever we want from some other way. Real big questions here that need to be answered, and we don't know what those answers are, but we've asked DOD. Yes, to make an analogy, it's almost as if they were to say, well, Thank you all for getting on FedRAMP, but we're not going to necessarily use FedRAMP people compliant in order to meet our cloud goals. You know, you've just given me something else to worry about. We'll have to check on that. (laughs) They haven't done that. I'm just making the analogy to to a program. Exactly, exactly. But I'm not denigrating either goal. I think there's some worthy objectives in the small business focus that the administration has. There's some worthy objectives in category management and best-in-class contracts. But I'm worried here that the process and sort of the input objectives are going to mask and perhaps do damage to the real need, which is to get the results under contracts that you need to have in order to keep the government running better. Right, because this whole program of category management, which originated you know, through the GSA, was controversial on the part of small business. And yet here they went through the process anyway. I mean, what choice do they have to get to be on best-in-class contracts? And now you're saying, well, golly, 
what was all that for, if anything counts toward the small business goals? And look, whenever you're putting a priority in one part of the process, you're diminishing the priority in another part of the process. And the real question is, who's analyzing these secondary effects, some of which are quite negative, either for the companies or for the customers who can't get at the people they need to get to? We're speaking with David Berto, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch gears here for a minute and talk about the debt limit extension options which none of them have been exercised yet except extraordinary measures because, you know, this is Congress and if they have till June X to reach the end of the extraordinary measures, they'll go to June X minus one day or minus two hours. So what could this mean for contractors, do you think? Well, there's three things that are going on. One is we're way earlier in the process in terms of the visible public attention here than we typically are, right? Because usually we get to the point where extraordinary measures start to be exercised, and the debate is months from now in terms of what does Congress have to do. But for a variety of reasons, this is a front and center topic months ahead of time now, right? So the real things that contractors need to be aware of is, I think, three pieces. One is it appears that because we got to the debt limit sooner than we expected, By the way, part of the reason for that is interest rates went up, and so payment on the debt started going up in September, October, November, so we spent more money. Yeah, funny how that works, huh? Funny how that works. You can't raise interest for the rest of the world without also raising interest for the federal government for its own recycling of its debt. And so we're going to reach it sooner. The thing is, Tom, we're going to reach the limit here, maybe in June, maybe in July, maybe in August, at a time where there's no obvious legislative vehicle, particularly a spending vehicle, on which we would attach the debt limit extension. This is different than where we've been in the past, where typically the two have gone together. A CR or an appropriations becomes the vehicle for the fight over the debt limit extension. That's not the case now. So one of the things that we're watching for is, will Congress actually try to take an action to reconnect those two? That is, reconnect the debt limit extension to the CR, which would be the next logical budget document that we have coming forward that has actual appropriations associated. That's not until September. So that would require a short-term extension of the debt limit until then. It seems like the whole world is addicted to these large bills that have to be passed as magnets for all the shavings of everything else that the government has to do. Whatever happened to legislation with a single purpose, this bill Uh, hereby (laughs) increases the debt limit, and it's one page. We could certainly do that, and I, you know, there may be something that comes out of this. The battle lines that have been drawn, of course, are pretty far apart. The House Republicans are saying we're not going to vote for anything unless there's significant spending cuts. They've talked about $130 billion. That's pretty significant. The White House has said we're not going to agree to anything that has spending cuts attached to it. So, you know, there's plenty of room in the middle, but it's not clear to me who's moving to the middle. Right? But you're right. Congress could certainly do that. Typically, these fights are tougher in a divided Congress, right? It's a little easier when the same party – is the majority in both houses of Congress and the White House. It's much tougher when they're divided. And Tom, we've had a divided Congress now for 30 years out of the last 42. So it's not as if we shouldn't know what to do here. The real question, though, is are we going to tie this to a potential government shutdown, which has happened a couple times in the past and certainly could happen again here? And when would that occur? Probably not until October 1st. All right. Well, then it's really then in Congress's court only at this point. But we don't know then if somehow the extraordinary measures would end and the Treasury has to issue new debt to cover the old debt, how they would allocate payments. That's really unknown, whether contract obligations, employee pension refreshment or employee salary payment. I mean, all of these things have to be balanced. 
Well, it's it's 12 years ago now, back in 2011, right, when we first wrestled with that question most openly, and Treasury concluded, and plenty of experts agreed with them, I'm certainly not one of them, that it's impossible to prioritize. It's not only impossible to set the priorities, it's probably difficult to actually execute them. It's not like we issue paper checks to everything where the money goes these days. So much of this is automated and electronic that it's going to be very, very difficult to manage. We've never defaulted. Uh, and nobody wants to go there. But boy, it's going to be a tricky mess to get there. And we're stuck in the middle of this. Well, electronic or paper check, it's all funny money. Well, we are always borrowing from the future to pay the bills due today from the commitments that were made. You know, one of the other things that was clearly in play before was the idea of a commission. Senator Joe Manchin has mentioned we could do that again. There was the Rivlin-Domenici Commission. There was the Simpson-Bowles Commission. They both came up with good ideas, but none of that was implemented. It's a much bigger problem now than it was in 2011. Wasn't it Prince Metternich that said that crowns rest not on royal heads but on debt? Well, <laughs> I, I haven't recalled that, but uh, I'll have to go back to my early political science assessments. But meanwhile, you know, for contractors, so you go back to 2011 and 2013. Sure. Ultimately, the impact was a sequestration, right? And there's plenty of data. We did uh, analysis there, and, and PSC members know this. Contractors ended up paying about 80% of the impact of that sequestration cost. So in the end, what we have to worry about is what's the impact on the dollars that keep our companies in business and keep the government operating. Or maybe it was Sherman Yellen. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And 
you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at Special Olympics and, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's, uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or, uh, year old, uh, folks, uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. 
Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.